0: Good evening and very much welcome to uh, LSE for this um, little workshop, which you've organized at rather short notice. Um, As you heard from the uh, invitation, um, this is uh, is our opportunity to present to you um, uh, a study we've been working on for uh, the European Parliament, which has been discussed yesterday in the Committee of International Trade in Brussels. And uh, we thought it would just be a great thing to use the occasion and the freshness of the topic to follow up and um, offer a little discussion, debate here in London um, tonight. Um, I first want to uh, welcome uh, the, the, the speakers that we have. So um, we have uh, Steve Woolcock who headed the, um, pres- uh, the study from the International Relations Department um, who will be doing the first part. Um, we have um, Lago um who is also from the International Relations Department and is doing uh, much research on the uh, empirical research on investment treaty law and will give us a little insight of that following our presentation. Um, that will be then followed by our three commentators. Um, we have uh, Simon Claude from the Department of uh, Business Innovation and Skill um, who has been involved in the, <laughs> in the process. Um, we have uh, Marta Busch from the European Commission. DG uh, Trade and um, then the outside view from uh, Luis Gonzalez of uh, Mapex Chambers who has formerly been is still uh, advising um, third countries as we refer to them in tonight's context. Uh, my yes. name is yes. Janklan Eissek, i from the Law Department um, and then uh, I w- just an organizational note, um, those of you who want to get CPD credits um, as you walk out on the table there, there is a list. Please make sure that you put on your name and your email address. We should have the other uh, information or maybe your position, I think that's what asked well, for. We need that in order to send you uh, a certificate if you do need one. Um, for the rest, I think we can start right away with Steve, please. Uh,
1: thanks very much, Jen. Um, <coughs> I I just want to take about 10 minutes to introduce the topic. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Some of you will know probably a great deal about this, others slightly less. So uh, if you those of you who know a lot about the subject, if you bear with me, I'll just do some uh, general introductory um, uh, points. Um, The um, proposal, there are two proposals on the table. Uh, there is a commission communication on EU investment policy which is how the commission envisages the progressive introduction of EU investment policies to replace member state bilateral investment treaties and there is a specific draft uh, proposed regulation on the transition measures between member state bilateral investment treaties and EU Um, investment agreements. So the the concrete uh, legislative proposal is this transitionary measure but there is also then this broader debate about what European Union investment policy should look like given that the Treaty of Lisbon granted exclusive EU competence for foreign direct investment. Um, So let me just set out I'm not a lawyer, uh, and, and there are quite a lot of you are lawyers. I'm not a lawyer, so let me uh, set out some of the more sort of broader political, economic factors involved. What's the benefit of having exclusive competence for the EU? Um, one is uh, the potential for improved market access if the EU can negotiate trade and investment <coughs> agreements together. In the past, the EU has negotiated market access uh, on tariffs and services and and various other issues and some uh, access for investment in services but it hasn't been able to negotiate comprehensive agreements like the u.s. has or like some other countries have So, (coughs) the second point is that um, in so far as uh, increased foreign direct investment strengthens international competitiveness then uh, inclusion of exclusive competence for investment can help to promote EU competitiveness in global markets so this fits in with the EU's strategy it's just come out now the EU's got a new trade strategy that Commissioner de Gucht presented yesterday which emphasizes the need for the EU to be competitive so the investment debate will fit into that broad picture Um, the um, the question of impact on jobs um, is uh, something that should be considered, uh, the studies that have been made, uh, produced so far suggest that the impact is going to be neutral. Uh, we haven't done any specific work on this but there will be adjustment costs and largely for, for lower skilled uh, workers um, uh, may well face greater adjustment costs. The other advantage, that's not a benefit, but I mean the benefit is (laughs) that um, uh, through engaging in the global economy the EU will remain internationally competitive. Um, The final point is that up to now you could argue that there's been a de facto establishment of international investment rules through bilateral investment treaties or through FTAs, which the EU as such has not been involved in member states have been involved in but the EU hasn't so that by including exclusive competence for investment the EU can have a greater influence perhaps on the evolution of, of international investment uh, law and policy <coughs> um, what does the treaty say? Well article 206, two 207 of the treaty and function of the European <coughs> Union um, Include foreign direct investment in exclusive competence, but it doesn 't define foreign direct investment, so there's an issue here about the scope of EU competence depends a bit on the definition of foreign direct investment, uh, which is unlikely to be zo- resolved anytime soon. Um, so the expectation must be that agreements negotiated will be mixed agreements, in other words EU competence and with some member state competence, especially on dispute settlement issues. Um, uh, so how might the EU address this problem? Well, <coughs> in the past, in trade, what the EU's done has simply been to say to the Commission, you negotiate agreements, and then we'll worry about the, the uh, de jure competence questions afterwards. Uh, you could do this with investment as well. Uh, And indeed, the Commission is now looking for negotiating mandates to include uh, investment with Canada, uh, with Singapore, and with some of the other countries the EU is negotiating FTAs with. But the question is, do you go into this without a broad debate about what the EU's aims on investment policy should be? And I put down here the European Parliament, we wish to consider this because I had presented this at the European Parliament, so obviously the Parliament... Wants to have a say in this because the Parliament has more say in uh, EU trade policy now. But um, now is an opportunity to consider what the aims and objectives of EU investment policy should be. Um, Very briefly, uh, the focus of uh, policy, in other words, which countries should the EU negotiate with? If you read de Gucht's speech uh, and the new paper, it's just come out. Uh, this really summarises what the aims are, is to negotiate with China, India Russia and to include investment in some of the FTAs it already uh, has in the pipeline so the key question and the one that um, we, we, we can perhaps discuss is what sort of standards for investment protection should be included um, because the, n- the new addition of course is to include investment protection market access for investment is um, uh, also an issue but um, I don't think there's so much controversy about uh, the the desire to get better access for European investors Uh, broadly speaking you could say there are two broad options in terms of investment protection measures you can go for broad standards of protection without any um, precise definition so you uh, Um, This this approach is the approach that most member state bilateral investment treaties have used up until now. And you could argue that this gives a fairly broad uh, level of protection for EU investors, but it leaves scope for interpretation by arbitral tribunals. The alternative is to look for tighter definitions of um, standards of protection, Uh, to clarify the the scope of investment protection, which would leave less scope for um, interpretation by tribunals uh, and would arguably uh, enhance the control, EU control over international investment law and arbitration. Now, you have to look then at all the detailed issues involved in these kind of standards, which I can't go into in my brief introduction. But here are some of the issues... Um, In terms of market access, there is a question about whether pre-establishment national treatment uh, should go uh, below the level of central government to include sub-central government, which is important, for example, in negotiations with federal states. Um, There is, in terms of uh, national treatment and MFN, the question here is whether you um, use the um, simply basic provisions for national treatment or, uh, or an MFN or whether you go for a comparative standard um, some other members uh, some other bits such as the US and Canadian bits include a comparative standard such as uh, national treatment under like conditions like circumstances uh, similarly on in f- with regard to fair and equitable treatment do you simply um, include uh, a requirement to provide fair and equitable treatment, or you do you try to define it uh, more precisely? To, uh, likewise, on indirect expropriation and non compensable regulatory measures. Uh, this is the sort of question in terms of whether um, there is, whether the existence of investment agreements can limit the scope for uh, national regulatory policies. And finally, the question uh, is whether you include provisions on sustainable development, so uh, core labor standards, environmental uh, uh, policy objectives, something that um, the European Parliament in particular is very keen to, to see included in the debate. The, um, the next question I'm going to talk about, and then I'll hand over to Jan, um, is on um, dispute settlement. Um, you know, which approach do you use to dispute settlement? In uh, <coughs> in all the existing member state bilateral investment treaties, you have investor state dispute settlement. So uh, it seems unlikely that any EU policy would not include invest- investor state dispute settlement. Otherwise, it simply wouldn't. Uh, match-up to the existing provisions. Um, the question is um, whether you include also some detailed provisions uh, with regard to the operation of uh, arbitral proceedings. For example, do you, should you uh, look for greater transparency in arbitral proceedings in order to uh, ensure that um, at least... Uh, all the cases that are underway are known, because in, in, there are some disputes that don't uh, aren't really public at all. Other questions are how you deal with multiple claims, uh, how you deal with divergent interpretations of different arbitral tribunals. Uh, should there be some sort of review or appeal procedure introduced in the EU investment agreements? so that a decision taken by an arbitral tribunal could be appealed or reviewed. Again, um, some of the uh, North American investment agreements include uh, these kind of provisions. I think I'll stop there, because otherwise my my next slide goes on to the transitional measures, which is your area.
0: I'm going to take over. What the first part of the study was about was really the Commission's communication about the future of European investment policy. Um, And the second piece is uh, the draft regulation providing for transitional arrangements um, for the member state uh, BATs in relation to third countries. So The whole discussion is really not about the intra-EU BATs, which pose Um, uh, even more severe and more hotly disputed uh, question. (coughs) Uh, So I uh, want to give you a very quick overview about uh, over the um, draft regulation and um, a very short analysis of that. And the first question that um, comes to mind is uh, why do we need this in the first place? Why do we need such (coughs) uh, EU instrument? And um, The explanatory memorandum of the Commission is very clear about that it wants to avoid any legal uncertainty on the status and validity of the BITs. It wants to maintain the status quo, and it wants to avoid potential erosion of rights and benefits available to investors. So it's all about legal certainty. And the question now in the first step would be, what is actually the status quo, Uh, meaning before the entry into force of any EU instrument? (coughs) Um, On the one hand, we have, of course, the changed situation, that we have now an exclusive competence of the European Union, um, the scope of which is still under debate and needs to be defined um, further on. But assuming that there is at least coverage of a good part of those provisions which typically are found in BITs, the question is now how can these existing member state um, treaties continue in existence because we're talking about an exclusive competence of the European Union, which in principle, as opposed to a concurrent competence, excludes the continuing validity of member state law in this area, at least until the EU takes up that competence. Under international law, this question mark is of course irrelevant. As you know that Article 46 of the Venice Convention on (coughs) the Law of Treaties, internal constitutional problems do not affect international validity of uh, international agreements, So, the BITs, even though there might be a question mark about their conformity with EU law, there is no question mark in terms of international validity. But, nevertheless, we have the question um, of how do we treat this internally? Because, as you may know, European law, at least the European Court of Justice, uh, uh, um, has the understanding that EU law, at least primary EU law, as found in the treaties, um, um, has supremacy. Over other international law obligations, and that might then eventually have repercussions uh, uh, on the enforceability, if you want so, of these treaties or the deriving awards um, within the EU. Um, this is a rather complex question, it's just to raise the question mark that exists. The first point is taken care of rather quickly in the draft regulations, we'll see it further on. What is much more complicated is the legal uncertainty regarding the un- incompatibility, or the potential incompatibility, of member state VATs with the EU law. As in 2009 the European Court of Justice has stated very clearly there is an obligation of the member states to, co- to cooperate with the Commission if the Commission finds that there is an incompatibility between the BIT provisions and the EU treaty and in those cases against Austria, Sweden and Finland, um, the ECJ confirmed the Commission's view that the guarantees of free transfer of capital to third countries contained in the BITs would potentially conflict with the EU, uh, Council of the European Union uh, uh, powers to restrict these kind of transfers to third countries in situations like, uh, for example, financial crisis, like, for example, terrorist activities um, based on uh, using these financial channels. In all these situations, the ECJ found that potentially the (coughs) powers of the council are impaired, and therefore the member states have to renegotiate their treaties and um, provide for respective uh, uh, conditions. And indeed, many member states have already followed up on this. At least we can find some protocols to BATs which have reacted to this judgment. Um, another potential of uh, conflict between EU law and uh, BAT provisions are the restrictions on free movement of goods, services, uh, free movement of goods, service workers, capital and the freedom of establishment for all these situations the EU treaty provides that there can be restrictions for reasons of public policy, public order, public safety um, and one could very well imagine that um, foreign investors from third countries using an investment vehicle the company set up and controlled in for example the Netherlands would then eventually be able to challenge these restrictions based on VAT um, uh, provisions um, Janssen has written about the possibility (coughs) of attacking um, acts such as nationalizations of banks for saving them in the financial crisis as a potential uh, problem because uh, BAT standards might uh, offer foreign investors uh, the right to claim damages in those situations. We have quotas and subsidies for agriculture broadcasting. In this situation we might have conflicts with the provisions in VITs prohibiting um, <coughs> certain uh, performance requirements um, or uh, provisions on the equal treatment, the national treatment, and the most favorable national treatment. We have ongoing arbitrations which involve questions of EU state aid uh, uh, provisions, uh, cases against Romania and Hungary, in which. Um, <coughs> Um, one of the defences of the member states is that they only acted in compliance with EU state aid law uh, when revoking subsidies which had previously, previous to accession, been granted to um, foreign investors. And these decisions are being now challenged in our tribunals. And eventually, what has already been alluded to, is the general jurisdiction of the ECJ about of the European Court of Justice about the implementation and in, uh, interpretation of EU law. We will find, and we do find, arbitral tribunals deciding de facto over the um, efficacy of EU provisions and EU regulation because they um, might find that those regulations are not in conformity with BIT standards, therefore grant damages against member states. Another point would be the overlap with existing EU agreements. We have already FTAs with Chile, the CARI Forum, and Korea which do provide for much more specified um, or much more qualified um, standards regarding investments, and the question is then which provisions have uh, primacy between the two, and this overlap creates again a question of um, uh, uh, legal uncertainty. This leads then on to the question of there is a need to pave the way for the new EU policy the EU has to develop its policy, it is effectively uh, seeking mandates to negotiate FTAs with Canada, Singapore, India, China as Steve already pointed out, and we have the question of how can the EU actually implement that part relating to investment protection um, if we have all of these PITs still around? Isn't this creating yet another layer of legal uncertainty? And eventually the BITs themselves have those post-termination clauses, which provided even in case of their termination, they will typically grant the protection for another 15 to 20 years, which means we have the problem of how do we actually bring about this transition um, in an orderly way. The answer of the Commission has been, in the draft regulation, to set up a procedural framework which should allow this transition and to address these questions of legal uncertainty. Um, very briefly, the procedures uh, laid out consist in the member states being obliged to notify all their BITs. If they do notify, the draft regula- the then regulation would provide for atom- automatic authorization of all notified BITs. Um, the commission will then publish a list on a regular basis with those BITs which have been notified and therefore automatically be authorized but in the next five years wants to review all of those BATs. Um, and just a little side remark, I think we're talking about 1,000 to 200 BATs. Um, they do have some work for the next five years. Um, where the Commission comes to the conclusion that a BAT is incompatible with EU law or EU policy on investments, it can ask the- member state to renegotiate and to terminate the BIT and if that is not done it can withdraw the authorization. If authorization is withdrawn then the um, respective is taken off the list which is published on a regular basis. There are provisions allowing the Member States to renegotiate and even to negotiate new BITs during the transitional period but under the very tight control of the European uh, Commission. Eventually there's a provision uh, which <coughs> wants to allow the Commission more participation in investment treaty um, disputes and the arbitrations. Um, I will not go into that. Maybe we can talk about that in the discussion. What is worth noting is that the logic of the, t- of the, of the draft regulation is the regulation, which is a regulation of the c- European Parliament and the Council, will itself grant automatic authorization of those BATs which have been notified. However, the withdrawal of that authorisation is, according to the draft proposal, done by the Commission. So we're talking about the kind of delegated powers here, Parliament and um, Council give authorisation, the Commission would be empowered to withdraw this if the Member States do not um, follow the uh, requested changes um, in order to bring their BTS in line with EU law and policy. <coughs> I will not go into the question, what is the added value of this list system, but one can raise a number of doubts about whether this actually creates more certainty, as what one expect on the first, uh, at first look. Um, I think at second look, it raises quite a lot of Uh, questions about maybe even enhancing legal uncertainty, what is quite clear is that the list system is a way of forcing the member states to to (coughs) in compliance with the requests of the commission because if they do not do so if they're taken off the list, it is like a public statement that there is a taint of doubt around these BATs even though they remain in force in the international sphere, in the internal EU sphere there is this question mark behind them if they're taken off the list what is actually uh, also uh, not unproblematic are the criteria for withdrawal uh, by the Commission. Um, they're listed here. The grounds are if the BIT conflicts with EU law, if the BIT overlaps with EU agreements with third countries, and <coughs> if the BIT constitutes an obstacle to development and implementation of, a union of the Union's policies. Eventually, we'll, uh, we'll come back to this. There is also the ground that um, the um, authorization can be withdrawn if the council, if requested by the commission to grant an authorization to open negotiations, does not act upon this proposal. Um, this is uh, commonly referred to as a blackmail provision. The commission could then go and take away the BITs from the member states until they are willing to eventually go to the <coughs> negotiation of a union instrument. I will quickly just to say a couple of words on the probably most critical point, which is the ground that an ABAT, authorization for a ABAT, can be re-withdrawn if it constitutes an obstacle to the development and implementation of the union's policies. Um, There's really a question what is that union's policy? Because it is a legal ground for withdrawing the um, authorization, so that is an act which in principle should be be able to be reviewed by the uh, European Court of Justice if attacked. The question is, what is it? What are those um, union's policies? So far there is none yet, and it's in the building, if you want so. Um, one could either say it is the Commission's communications, the white papers, and all the other soft law which comes out of Brussels, but then of course that would mean the Commission itself would define the criteria for withdrawing um, a BAT by putting out um, its its opinions, um, that of course would eventually amount or could be seen as some kind of unfettered discretion to withdraw um, BITs. On the other hand, if you would go the hard line and say well only the negotiation mandates given by the Council and approved by the European Parliament eventually are really the sources of the EU policy for international investments. Um, But that of course are only very specific um, acts which do not allow generalization and would eventually allow the council and the, therefore the member states in the council to take full control of uh, this issue. This is actually where I think the Commission comes in when it uh, uh, when it uh, brings this ground for withdrawal of saying that the PIT can be with the authorization of the AT can be withdrawn if there is no decision of the council on the authorization to open negotiations. <coughs> It is a way of bringing back this power to the commission, the commission being the guardian of the treaties, the commission being there to ensure that this new exclusive competence of the union is actually taken up. Because if it is not taken up, what we would be seeing is the decay of this exclusive competence and it becoming uh, moot and uh, of no value. So the commission must, in a certain way, ensure that a stalemate in the council would not eventually lead to blocking the entire process of developing and implementing (coughs) the EU policy. Um, As I already said, this has been referred to as a blackmail provision, but it it could also be seen as a safeguard against the risk of eroding the Union's powers. What eventually boils down to very quickly, what the draft regulation is proposing is to give the the Commission broad powers to shape the future (coughs) of this uh, policy on investment and not to make it dependent on the uh, maybe reluctance of the member state (coughs) as united in the council. Um, Of course this draft regulation (coughs) will only become European law if it is approved by the council itself and the European Parliament. This is I think the toughest point which the commission is facing of bringing this through and getting the council to cede this power to the commission um, and there will probably be much negotiation on this in the future to come. Are there real alternatives? Could we just live without such regulations, say, we just have a blanket authorization for all BITs until a new EU instrument is negotiated? That could just take the form of a general um, decision of the Council and the Parliament. Um, However, then we would have no framework this transitional period and eventually the commission would be left with nothing other tool than doing what it has done so far which is litigating the European Court of Justice um, by forcing the member states to comply with their obligation to cooperate um, and that would not be an extremely structured process but really um, something which I think the, even the member states would not be very happy with but no other resort for the commission in that if we don't have a framework we do have then the advantage of a framework, but the question is, for the moment being, the proposal on the table is a rather harsh one. It is one which vindicates much rise to the commission, and it seems to prescribe um, a path forward to the member states which they are um, most likely and actually do not like. And the question is whether there is not a different solution possible, which would more be in a facil- facilitating way, rather than prescribing way, and uh, one of the possible changes which um, we have suggested to the parliament would be that the comitology mechanism in EU law is used which means that there is a a committee of national experts, of member state experts which could eventually trigger um, a kind of block to the proceedings that the commission, uh, to the commission's decision and for certain touchy points allow that, commission, uh, that decision to move up to the level of the Council and the European Parliament which would be a kind of withdrawal of the uh, implementing powers that we've seen in the very beginning. The Commission would for certain cases where the Member States feel this is a touchy subject they would have to let go and let that decide at the Council and the European Parliament. Um, there is certainly no good solution for all of this um, but what is on the table, has its deficits, has its advantages, and it can be justified, and I guess it will sh- be shown in the next months uh, how the institutions eventually uh, solve this problem of uh, sharing the power. Thank you. Okay. I think I'm just... I don't have a talk on so I'm just
2: going to keep sitting there. Um. Yeah? Well, I've been asked to... I'll take a step back and provide some thoughts on my own research here at the LSE, uh, where I've spent the last couple of years uh, interviewing big negotiators from a very wide range of developed and developing countries about well, what factors into investment treaty negotiations, what's really important for negotiators and domestic stakeholders Uh, when you consider the obligations in try investment treaties. And in particular, what (coughs) impact does it have for the politics surrounding investment treaty negotiations when the state has been subject to a major investment treaty claim? And that, I think, is very important for what we're talking about here today in the future of European investment policy. So what I would like to do in, in the short time I have available is to make uh, uh, simple submission namely that in the the long run success if you will of European investment policy that is going to depend on one critical factor that I think has very little to do with law and it has very little to do with economics uh, but it has everything to do with politics, and in particular that is whether decision makers today realize that once a European country, a European member state, is going to be a subject to a major investment treaty claim then the politics surrounding European investment, uh, investment treaty policy making is going to be changed considerably and maybe for good. So with the risk of sounding slightly alarmist um, such a claim by say a Chinese <coughs> investor or Russian investor or an Indian investor could make it much more difficult to sustain the political support that's necessary to uh, promote European investment treaties in the future, or at least in the very potent form of investment treaties that some member states are trying to push for. Now, no country or no Western European country has as of yet been subject to a major investment treaty claim. So Spain had Maffesini in (coughs) 1997, but that was a relatively minor affair. Uh, Germany, Great Britain has had their own minor claims recently, or at least threats of claims, but that's kind of it. We have yet to have our Ethel. We have yet, we have yet to have our MethaneX claim here in Western Europe. And uh, I think that's crucially important to understand some of the thinking or perceptions about uh, investment trees in some corners uh, of the European Union. If we think back to the mid 1990s, the United States and Canada were still signing the traditional bits with very broad and vague uh, language for the substantive obligations, um, with the greatest possible discretion given to arbitrators to determine what's po- permissible in the public regulation under international investment treaties. And there was no discussion. Um, there was no public debates in the American Congress and the Senate. Canada, I would think. We had the former Canadian bit negotiator here. Um, this pretty much uh, happened under the radars of the vast majority of, of, of public and political stakeholders. Um, and even when Chapter 11 was signed uh, in NAFTA, um, not that many actually took much notice of it. Until ETH, right? So until the claims came. Um, and that changed the politics of investment treaties completely in North America. Um, suddenly, Chapter 11 was portrayed in the New York Times as NAFTA's dirty little secret. Um, and you had policymakers at the state level in DC that was you know, outraged about the potency of these treaties and investor state arbitration, um, which was something that hardly any of them had never even heard of. And the result was quite predictable. So apart from the interpretive note on Fair and Treatment that came out for NAFTA, Uh, both Canada and the United States, as most of you are probably aware, started to be much more careful in defining key provisions, making certain carve-outs from their bid models and so forth. What is the relationship between fair and equal treatment and international minimum standards, and all those kind of questions. And so the point is that for political reasons, their models, their bid models, and their bid policies simply had to be toned down to realign the rights of investors with the rights of host states to regulate. Otherwise, it just wouldn't have the necessary political support. And these efforts are still ongoing. We heard during the uh, uh, presidential campaign that both Clinton and Obama was kind of questioning the utility of investor state arbitration. And the uh, big review in the United States last year uh, also had it as its intent to kind of reduce the risk of litigation against the United States under the investment treaty. And in developing countries and transition economies, you have had seen the same pattern. If you look at which I've done in some of my research, if you can look at uh, the average number of bits ratified and signed by developing countries in the years before their first claim the years after, the slowdown is just absolutely remarkable. Okay. So just to mention a few examples. So it wasn't until Pakistan had its SGS claim in 2001 that negotiators didn't even realize what these treaties were about. They signed it from 1959 onwards, right? so that's 40 years. Um, and for a while there, a few years, at least until some new officials uh, came in office, it was impossible for Western countries to sign a bill with Pakistan after that claim. Um, here in Europe, or in Eastern Europe, in the Czech Republic, the same thing happened. After, of, of course, Czech Republic have been subject <coughs> to a number of major and some of them very controversial claims, after which the politics of investment treaty negotiations in the Czech Republic changed completely. You had to be much more careful in the approach um, in defining key standards and the same kind of story that happened in, 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 in North America. And I could, you know, I could go on. So what I've done is I've interviewed investment treaty negotiators from pretty much all over the world for the last couple of years and this is the story that's uh, pretty much the same. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that it's not going to be the same in Europe. So once a German environmental regulation is targeted uh, by some foreign investor, and that claim is probably going to come at one point, uh, and when it does, um, that is going to change the politics of European investment treaties completely. Um, and that's important for what we're talking about here today. Um, because one thing is the investment treaties is obviously going to be much more politicized uh, in Europe. when. You delegate this to Brussels because suddenly the European Parliament has to have a view. Um, But combining with the observations that I've just made, I think the Council in particular has to think very carefully about just how hard they can push European investment treaties. In other words, even if those member states that are arguing today that it's unnecessary Right, so it's unnecessary from a legal perspective to make certain clarifications of expropriation, fair treatment make certain uh, carve outs from the substantial provisions even if they're right that might not be uh, particularly relevant or important um, what matters I think at that point are perceptions and perceptions will change after the first major claim hits uh, Western Europe and a European member state and if at that point a considerable subset of the political stakeholders um, conclude, right or wrong, (coughs) that European investment treaties are inherently illegitimate, or inherently uh, tilted towards the rights of foreign investors, well, that could very well undermine the political support that's necessary to sustain European investment treaties for the next 10-15 years down the line. And looking at the communication from the Commission, I think at least, a lot of, it appears as though a lot of forward-looking thinking has been done along those lines. So many of the innovations from the United States and Canada in terms of specifying key provisions, for consolidation of claims, um, they're in there and I think for prudent reasons. And of course there's more you can, you can consider um, than just those addressed by the commission, but overall I think it's important for member states to realize that while the Commission's communication is perhaps not as ambitious or as far-reaching in terms of the protections granted to foreign investors, it does appear to be a more robust strategy. Um, it reduces the risk of controversial claims against European member states and thereby takes some steps, small steps, but nevertheless steps in the direction to ensure that the political support is also going to be there 10-15 years down the line for <coughs> European investment. Uh, treaties. So while it may be tempting for member states like Germany um, to insist on a more far-reaching approach, I think there's an inherent risk that such a strategy could backfire in the run. <coughs> so let me just end this brief talk by saying that it is very important to remember two things. First of all, if an anonymous support is going to be necessary for ratification, then a backlash against investment treaties in a single member state could potentially hold up European investment treaties in the future, right? But secondly, if you have a broader backlash against investment treaties in Europe, which might happen, um, then you need to remember, or some member states need to remember that just as the global network of BATs have been spreading and developed over a relatively short period (coughs) of time, it could be uh, torn torn, torn apart as quickly. Um, so for those two reasons alone, I think it would make sense for the Council in particular to perhaps be careful uh, in not trying to push European investment too far from what the Commission has suggested.
1: So with that. Thank you. Hello, thanks very much. <coughs> um, next speaker will be uh, Martha Busch from the uh, European
3: Commission.
4: Uh, I'm working in digital trade, in the services investment unit, uh, and it's how we need the proposed, uh, drafted, uh, bold regulation, draft regulations and the communication.
1: Can you, uh, can you stand up? Because I think they're having trouble hearing that.
4: Can you hear me again? Because I really would prefer to sit down. <laughs> <coughs> Maybe you can just I, I will speak a just, bit round. I will speak louder. Um, very uh, comfortable position because uh, i was supposed to contain the communication and the communication, uh but already provided for for broad uh, picture of both uh, documents so there is not much left for so i changed a bit my uh, my presentation trying to respond to to um, major critics uh, presented by uh, both Steve and Jan in their presentations. So, I would start with uh, with the future um, investment policy as as, uh, uh, the commission's uh, communication on on future investment uh, policy. Uh, Steve mentioned uh, the problem of of the scope of competence. FDI uh, not being defined uh, could be contentious in terms of defining future investment policy. The Commission doesn't have have any problems with, with the scope of competence. And the communication is very clear about this. Uh, we think that that the scope of competence uh, is not uh, solely defined by the article 207 of the treaty that refers directly to FDI but also by other articles of the treaty namely those containing rules on free movement of capital which covers different uh, forms of investment, including portfolio investment, and you may find respective uh, uh, wording on this in the communication itself. Uh, under chapter three of the of the communication, uh, point B, uh, it is stated that. The articulation of investment policy should be consistent with the treaty's chapter on capital and payments, which provides that, in principle, all restrictions on payments and capital movements, including those involving direct as well as portfolio investments, both between member states and between member states and third countries, are prohibited. That chapter does not expressly provide for possibility to conclude international agreements on investment. However, to the extent that international agreements on investment affect the scope of the common rules set by the treaty's chapter on capital and payments, the exclusive competence to conclude agreements in this area would be implied. So this is the basis, legal, ba- legal basis for um, the Commission proposal to to to, to cover all four forms of investment uh, by the investment uh, future investment policy. And again, one uh, clarification: it's not that the Union only starts creating, establishing the uh, the, uh, the investment policy. Uh, we have already done this before by negotiating market access on investment, both multilaterally and bilaterally. Multilaterally, through GATS, we covered establishment, mode three in services sectors. But in FTAs, we also covered establishment market access in establishment for non-services sectors. So, we already uh, had investment policy <coughs> that focused mainly on market access. And in our FTAs, in our trade agreements, we provided for broad uh, provisions on, on, on li- liberalization of, 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 of investment both in services and in in, uh, non-services sectors. So we already provided for national treatment and MFN standards uh, for pre-establishment. Now, of course, uh, because of the Lisbon, we may expand this investment policy to investment protection, and that is why the title of the communication refers to comprehensive investment policy not a new investment it's a kind of new investment policy but but it's, it's only expansion of, of existing uh, policy so this um, uh, remarks are on the competence. Uh then uh, yes, um, the communication um, gives orientation uh, orientations on with whom the EU could negotiate investment agreements. So, the, communica- the Commission proposes in the communication uh, some criteria for engaging in investment negotiations with third countries. And here, the determinants criteria, um, I mean, the, the, there is probably no critic <coughs> from, from, from the LSE study on this, uh, if of course, uh, um, uh, scale of investment flows, market potentials, uh, and instability of, of, of third markets in terms of uh, investors' um, uh, priorities. So, uh, we um, we named four countries as uh, short-term priorities. These are uh, Canada, India, Singapore and Mercosur countries. Um, but what is important is that the Commission believes that the best way to proceed with these comprehensive investment negotiations is to include this uh, comprehensive investment agenda into ongoing trade negotiations and into wider trade negotiations. It means that, that, that uh, and it has already been said, that the Commission intends to ask the Council for um, uh, modification of existing directive negotiating mandates for those three countries. And of course, if the EU considers future wider trade negotiations, we may also consider to engage into comprehensive investment negotiations that will include investment protection. But of course, it doesn't mean that the EU will not negotiate in the future stand-alone investment agreements. We may consider um, in which circumstances uh, these stand-alone investment agreements could be feasible and desirable. And here, um, the best candidates countries, we do not foresee any wider uh, trade negotiations for the time being. So, we may consider engaged in in, 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 um, in, uh, stand-alone investment uh, negotiations. Then, of course, the communication uh, proposes uh, a set of standards that, um, that Uh, investment, European investment agreement. And here, again, the communication is very explicit that that we really want to to base on member states' experience. So we refer to basic investment protection standards that are present in member states PRTs uh so you find there, uh, references to fair and equitable treatment to full protection and security uh to non non-discrimi- discrimination non um, discrimination uh, standards like national treatment and mfn uh, then uh, protection against unlawful appropriation so there is nothing new uh, in the communication on this uh we will base on on the best uh, one point that, that Steve made on national treatment uh, on some cards out as I said the EU has already negotiated uh, investment agreements within wider um, uh, uh, trade agreements and we negotiated market access. and national treatment and MFN are part of those agreements and of course we provide for exceptions, both <coughs> regional treatment and MFN. For instance, for MFN, through Regional Economic integration Organization um, uh, cards out. So we will continue doing this, because we need to protect <coughs> sectors sensitive, but only for market access, for pre-establishment. I do not see any reason why we should limit uh, national treatment standard for, invest, for, for post-establishment investment protection. But of course, it's still uh, and this was definitely not the commission intention in the communication. So we will not change our policy with respect to market access. And also, uh, it should be also very clear that, that um, sub, sub, sub-governmental sub-national measures are covered by by uh, by um, national achievement and MFN uh, market access provisions. So there is there should be no uh, uh, no um, uncertainty about this. Uh, <coughs> and then uh, pro- provisions on sustainable development. Uh, yeah, d- this is. Also, um, very clear from the communication. Uh, The communication makes uh, an explicit reference that the EU investment policy should be guided by the principles and objectives of the Union's external action, including the promotion of the rule of law, human rights, and sustainable development. important that the new exclusive competence on FDI is a part of common commercial policy. Trade uh, policy, um, a government's right to regulate is a standing principle and it is already reflected in our trade agreements. We address this in FTAs by making specific commitments in which it's, uh, our trade partners and the EU are not prevented from introducing non-discriminatory measures necessary to pursue public policy objectives. And there are also provisions uh, related to non-lowering standards, labour standards. So there is nothing new uh, for common commercial policies. Investment policy uh, is a part of common commercial policy. Uh, then uh, the communication uh, is also very clear with uh, the commission approach to investors to stay in the uh, The commission believes that enforcement mechanism um, is of crucial importance uh, and it should be ensured in European investment agreements. Uh, And the Commission is analyzing possible options to improve the efficiency and transparency of investment protection proceedings uh, by developing further uh, its ideas on (coughs) comprehensive approach to investors to stay dispute settlement. Uh, Developing this approach, the Commission intends to build on member states experience. Uh, But the communication also uh, mentions uh, challenges related to this. And okay, I I need to You may find all these things in the, um, in the, in the communication. Now, on, um, on the regulation. Uh, the major problem is legal certainty. Or legal uncertainty. As, as uh, uh, indicated. Yes. Yeah. Legal certainty is the main objective of the regulation. And uncertainty is created by the Treaty by the itself. And we want to address this problem. Um, I think that the, the, the most contentious insu- issue is, is withdrawal and review clause. Um, but what the review and withdrawal clauses are about? The review states that the commission will review investment agreements, DITs. And in five years after entering the force of the, reg- of the regulation, it will present the report to the Parliament and to the Council with findings, <coughs> with its findings, on the compatibility with the EU law, uh, on the potential overlaps with, uh, with uh, European agreements, or uh, obstacles that they possibly, I don't know, create uh, to the EU investment policy. The withdrawal clause create, creates a mechanism to react in case the problem persists to exist. But again, this is a procedure designed to cope with those problems. So before withdrawing authorization, we consulted member states. We provided for a comitology procedure to discuss it with member states and to try to find a solution. And you, you may be perfectly right that we have already infringement procedure in place. But I would say that it would create more uncertainty, because there is no place for consultations, for consultations with all member states. And what's the result of, of withdrawal authorization? And the, commission, the commissioner and, and, and the commission itself is very clear that it's like a last, last resort measure. What's the result of withdrawal of authorization? The, the, the regulation is, is very clear. I think that it's in uh, um, its preamble in Versailles 12. Uh, it says that unless replaced by an agreement of the union, Concerning investments, or otherwise terminated bilateral agreements concluded by member states with third countries, remain binding on the parties under public international law. What's the impact of? I'm not a lawyer, but what's the legal impact of withdrawal of authorization? Okay, we formally admit that 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 furthering is withdrawn. And because of the duty of loyal cooperation, member states <coughs> should either renegotiate or terminate the agreement. But they may not do Or they may go to the court and uh, question the Commission's decision. And then it is up to the ECJ to decide whether the criteria that the commission used are really met. So um, this would be like um, uh, my explanation on the on the on the uh, scope of, of withdrawal and, and review clause um, on the procedural framework uh, maybe just to inform you that that and especially authors of, of, the, of, the, of the of the study itself, that uh, probably uh, late November, uh, the Council and the Parliament will adopt a new decision on uh, on comitology. And the the procedures will be limited only to two, uh, namely to advisory committee and examination committee. So there will be, um, so you may just adjust uh, um, uh, the the, the text because your suggestion will will, will not be available I
1: would stop here. I would be happy to to reply later on. Okay. Thanks very much, Martha. We've got. For those of you who are waiting to ask questions and start engaging in the discussion, just hold off another 20 minutes because we've just got two more interventions uh, from
5: from Simon, first of all, from um, from the BIS. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for producing a paper that kind of really <coughs> illuminates all the challenges that policymakers have from uh, the transfer of competency, the FDI, and it also saved me from a great deal of boredom in Wolverhampton train station on Saturday, <laughs> 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 which for any LSE uh, student from the UK you should go there to study because you won't want to look up. Just um, I think the reports. Um, well, actually, first of all, I'm going to be talking as the UK, so it's kind of just how a member state um, found the transfer and competency, the regulation and the communication that was produced by the Commission and also how the reports frame. Um, I think the reports right kind of framed into two issues at the very beginning. The broader question of what's the EU's approach going to be to investment um, policy in the future and then the more immediate question of how are we going to manage the transition. Um, though there obviously not mutually exclusive and very closely linked. The separation in this way is that because the use approach to international investment policy is only at the very start of what could go on for, you know, in theory, centuries. Um, it, it'll change, it'll develop as we have different parliaments, uh, different commissioners, and even as international relations change parachute from west to east. Whereas with the immediate problem with the transition, <coughs> Sorry, I said problem, I mean issue. Um, it's, it's for now and it's going to have an immediate effect on what's happening now because, as was alluded to earlier, there is uncertainty, which is the one thing investors don't want. So, this is what we really need to sort out. Um, the report's also right to kind of highlight from the outset that the current situation has left us with this uncertainty and that it's, this is the opposite of what member states want, uh, the opposite of what the Commission wants. And mostly, what the opposite of what investors want. Um, so I'm going to talk about part two, the transition first. Um, I think what Jan said was pretty enlightening. That there is no good solution. Um, it's kind of finding the kind of least worst option, really. Um, from kind of UK point of view, um, the Commission is trying to <coughs> ensure certainty by providing a regulation that allows member states to maintain their existing international investment agreements in force. However, by attaching the kind of four clause, b- withdrawal clauses um, to the authorisation, we're immediately undone with the certainty that they're seeking to provide. Um, I would again raise the kind of the title of the Commission's communication, which is Towards a Comprehensive International Investment Policy. At present there's twelve hundred existing uh, bilateral investment treaties that Member States own and they provide a really comprehensive coverage of, um, for the member states who have signed them and I realise that some member states haven't signed them so it, it is unequal and the single market isn't balanced but it, it shouldn't, we shouldn't have a race to the bottom we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't try and balance the single market by bringing everyone down to the, le- the lowest level we should try and bring everyone up um, what will happen with the four withdrawal clauses is that if um, member state bits are taken away we will actually end up with a less comprehensive international um, investment policy. as It's going to take years to actually replace the ones we've got if you're talking about negotiating with China, India and Russia. And I think they are the right countries to go to as a priority but it's not going to happen in two, three weeks. Something like that. we be looking at years. Um, I think, yeah, I, think that's, I think that's my main point with this is that the regulation should authorise member states to have their international investment agreements to reinforce and only to be terminated when an EU agreement is signed. It's better for this process to take decades and thus take time and get it right than try to rush it through. And it would mean that we have to keep the comprehensive coverage and we, it would eventually just grow. We'd be looking at new countries as well as improving the agreements we've got with existing ones. Um, in regards to kind of what's the first part of the report, what I would refer to as mainly the communication um, and kind of future EU policy, um, that's almost a completely different point of view from a member state. The UK I mean, strongly agrees with the initial list of target countries that we've got and the methodology that kind of using the magnitude of investment flows market potential for future investments and the stabil- stability of the investment climate I mean to simplify it, investors want protection where they need it and where they're most likely to go so these are completely the right places um, I, would, I would have a small concern about maybe Canada and Singapore how quickly we want to sign agreements with them and why we would choose them over maybe South Africa or Saudi Arabia because I mean in the report Singapore the best place to do business in the world So in theory that's, you know, but I can understand if you're (coughs) negotiating a treaty with them and you've got them around the table, (coughs) that makes sense. Um, I also understand why the Commission don't want to have a set model bit. I can understand why you want to be flexible uh, when you're talking to countries as different as Canada. (coughs) Um, I think it would be wise to have some kind of draft text put in front of them. It wasn't necessarily a model that would change from which country you're talking to that had kind of your kind of model clauses, as it were, so you chose like an MFN clause mm-hmm. that you'd have and you could maybe tweak to suit China, suit Canada, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, when I was going through the report, I seem to have scribbled like yes next to most of the kind of questions that are posed, should it have this, this and this, but I think to summarise the UK's position is that on the content of these is that we want the kind of all the classic elements, um of treatment, non-discrimination, most discrimination, etc., etc. But then you could choose more carefully about something like umbrella clauses. That you could use these, maybe some that you you thought these would be necessary. Maybe leave them out. It's for those people making the policy to decide. Um, On just on the very last point on this, we would also want investor-state included. I think the commission's right to say that that will happen. Um, And we would maybe maybe stuck in the mud, but we, we like the broad definition. Of investment, so it can cover as much as possible. But I think there are there's, there's definitely possibilities that to have tighter definitions on the protection. Um, and that's something that obviously they need to consider. And a bit like the discussion about NAFTA, I think the EU's in a really lucky position that it can start in a fraction away. It's got lots of history to draw upon, it's got lots of different experiences that they could say oh, this is what's wrong with NAFTA. This is what was wrong with the old member states. How can we make them both better It's something that's. And also, of course, they're going to be new in the sense that the EU isn't a country. So it's got 27 voices that want certain things. And also, I think the communication loose that doesn't have a legal identity yet. So that's another discussion for another seminar, I guess. Rather than just repeating myself, as all conclusions kind of do, (laughs) um, I would say if I was going to frame it in the options that the report presents, I think options 1 and 2 are just too definite, to reject what the Commission's come up with would be daft, because there's there's a lot of good stuff in that. And I think the communication especially says this is where we want it to go, I think it's right. I think on the, the regulation, I think, they're right to create the authorisation, I don't think they're right with the with, withdrawal with powers, which is why I would say we can't support it totally. Um, so I'd say you, are, you do need to look for some kind of balanced compromise to find the right approach. But I think you would keep, need to keep the policy goal that I think everyone really shares. I mean, obviously, I can't speak for every MEP in the European Parliament. But I think most people's goals with treaties that are designed to protect investment would be investor protection and the certainty that. <coughs> you need to guarantee through that with legal security and I think I'll leave it there
1: Thanks very much
5: Uh, Our last speaker is Luis Gonzalez from
1: uh, (laughs) ECHX My task is
6: is to discuss the practical implications with the Commission's proposal and uh, we have heard from Marta and from Simon legal certainty and from Jan more legal uncertainty and I, I tend to agree with Jan on the problems that I see with the the Commission's proposal. Uh, By the way, uh, great, great, great uh, study. I think, uh, as Simon mentioned, I think it really touches on the key issues that stakeholders are concerned about. And uh, Martha mentioned that the main objective the main objective of the regulation is legal certainty, and I take that Achieving uh, the maximum protection for European investors is also one of the goals and, and, and the main objectives of the regulation. And if we look at that, uh, the practical uh, aspect of the regulation, I would say and I would suggest to you that it would actually achieve the opposite if we follow the Commission's proposal. And I'm going to give you five reasons. Actually, I'm going to give you four and a half one mm-hmm. has already been discussed by Jan, which is the intra-EU BITs, the EU supremacy and international BITs, uh, the BITs in Chachapagong, that has been dealt by Jan, so we're going to discuss four and a half uh, points with you. First one, I would say that if you want to maximize the protection for European investors, we're on the wrong track. First of all, because to maximise the protection to European investors, you need treaties. You need a legal instrument to protect investors. So protection comes with treaties. And the less treaties, the less protection. The more treaties, the more protection. Since 2006 that I've been involved in this coming and going of this Lisbon Treaty mandate, no mandate, because I was working for a government that was actually negotiating the first... Uh, investment chapter of the European Union that was in 2006 the problem was um, we said well you can start negotiating with us and we were saying but you don't have the mandate they responded, Brussels responded but we will have the mandate not yet but soon will come and then one thing you have to bear in mind is that developing countries third countries are interested in having BIT's with Western European countries. It's not only that we're in a defensive, <coughs> developing country, and in a defensive position where the European country comes and says, this is my model, I want you to sign this BNT. I want you to have a BNT with you because I'm a capital exporting country interested in investing, my investors investing in the being the protected in your very exotic country. So, uh, it's not always the case as I said, the Berlin countries are knocking at the door of Western European countries saying I want to sign up the NIT because I have looked at my statistics just as as, 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 was, as the Brussels and, and, and Jan uh, went through I have five big, my investors are, come from five big countries I'm interested in protecting the UK investors the French, the Spanish and regrettably uh, and, and, and the Dutch as well and the Swiss, the Swiss are not from the EU, so let's leave aside the prisoner. That is how they're interested. And what, what, ha- what has happened since 2006 until now, until 2010? The doors have been closed because the member states have said, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't sign any more treaties. I cannot initiate any more VITs because of Brussels. No, I, I, and I'm talking about I know, I know some of you were going to make that face <laughs>
7: I'm,
6: I'm talking about new BITs not continuing the BITs that were already started in, in, in those years new BITs, what's up? well you know I'm, I have to wait, so they have taken the position mainly Western European countries I'm saying all of them, I'm saying some of them have taken the decision of let's wait and see because Brussels, I'm waiting for instruction from Brussels to what, what to do this treaty came, we are here 2010, the fact is that there, we should have had more investment treaties to protect uh, European investors, and that has not been the case. The second reason I want to uh, discuss is, and I agree with the study of, uh, prepared by the LSC on the issue of the proposed procedure committee the Commission to direct member states to amend or terminate uh, BNTs and that I, I suggest to you that this will create uncertainty. Because it's, it's put in a way that, okay, there's going to... The Brussels Commission is going to order the, the member state, okay, you need to amend the treaty, or you have to terminate the treaty. Well, it's not that easy. Why is not? Because it's a two-way road. Developing countries also have a say. And I'm going to give you an example. The Czech Republic. I've been advised in several countries, and every, every developing country has received uh, a diplomatic note from the Czech Republic saying, can you please, uh, I need to, um, in order to comply with EU law, I need to modify this clause of the BRT. Can you please accept this draft, and, 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 and then we can proceed with the formalities. Well, developing countries now, now probably before they did have the say, but now they're saying, hold on a minute, you want to modify the BIT? Well, I also want to modify the BIT. So let's reopen the BIT. And now you're sending me the, your proposal, I'm sending you these other proposals. I want to change the definition, I want to change for equitable treatment, I want to limit the scope of uh, the umbrella cost, I want to get rid of the umbrella cost, blah, blah, blah. What has been the response? Zero. Silence. So no amendments, because because it's not easy to amend a treaty, because once you open a BNIT on a specific issue, although it's minimal for uh, let's say for the Brussels point of view it's just transfer of capitals, transfer of payments, for the other countries it's the opportunity to reopen a European old model European BNIT. So um, what is the case scenario, terminate the BNIT is the worst case for European investor. If the member state is going to take a dramatic and drastic approach <coughs> to terminating a BIT, the European investor will be in the worst case scenario. I don't have to tell you why. The only the only possibility is, well, you can renegotiate a new BIT. Well, it's extremely complicated nowadays because many developing countries are very, uh, as you mentioned, it's very, they're very receptive and very uh, defensive as towards the, all these investment Treaties are they really increasing the investment <coughs> opportunities, etc., etc. I'm getting all these claims, and I'm getting, and I'm not getting uh, uh, foreign investment. So, no, thank you. And even if they, even if the European, the member state, um, is able to reach an agreement on a new BIT, let's say um, a new treaty, it's not going to be the old European model BIT. So, it's going to be more restrictive. Because the, the, the days of the old model BIT, European model BIT, those days are over. For um, the third uh, reason, is that it seems that now the EU is going to negotiate. It's not uh, going to step into the shoes of the members, say, it's going to negotiate investment agreements. Uh, it seems that it's going to negotiate on um, you know the big ones. It's not going to deal with Kazakhstan or Sweden. It's going to deal with the big ones and comprehensive agreements. So that's fine, the problem is, do the third countries want to negotiate with the European Union? Are they comfortable negotiating with the European Union? I'm, su- I'm going to suggest to you that they probably are not happy with the fact that they now have to deal with the European Union. One of the advantages of uh, the is it was a one-to-one negotiation, it was, I know it, I know the United Kingdom, I know how many islands, how many territories it has, I know it's a country, and it's going to be on a reciprocal basis, and they felt comfortable in dealing or negotiating investment issues, it's extremely comfortable on a one-by-one basis, negotiating with a thing called European Union, with Godzilla, with 27 countries, and God knows how many years to come it is extremely, extremely threatening for developing countries, especially those countries who have already faced investment claims. Why? Well, because basically they're negotiating with, they're, they're signing a, a treaty with the whole world. Yeah? Anyone who invests in Cyprus, you know, any Russian who invests in Cyprus will be a European investor and could bring claims against this unique, only uh, developing country. Secondly, uh, the countries that they, ha- they have mentioned, well look at the countries, Russia, India, uh, uh, Canada, they all have massive claims against these countries, and as you mentioned, uh, there's, there is a, there's a negative perception about the system, so it's not going to be easy. Now, why was it better in negotiating uh, 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 an investment treaty with member states? Well because it was flexible it was technical it was a technical negotiation it was only on investment issues No, it was low profile and, and, and easy to negotiate and easy to uh, you know, pass it to congress or to parliament if we have now the European Union one of the, the disadvantages well it's going to be politicized Obviously, because when you have when you negotiate with the European Union, all the eyes are on you. You're in the spotlight. Negotiate, negotiate with the European Union, everyone will look at that agreement. And the European Union doesn't negotiate. It will not negotiate just on investment. It will negotiate on other issues. So you will have human rights, environmental issues, and anyone who has had an experience negotiating with the European Union, European Union will, will come up with a list. Have you joined the International Criminal Court? Well, that, well you have to. Why are your human rights uh, standard? Oh no, not, not that. So you have to do this. You have to do that. So you're going to contaminate the investment provisions with other issues such as human rights, blah blah blah. I don't want to go into detail. You already know. And time is running out for me. Um, another another disadvantage is that it brings public attention. And well, it's not that this bad. This is going to make it very difficult for the European Union to get that developing country, or that third country to agree to a treaty, because you have NGOs who will scrutinize whatever you negotiate, whatever you agree, and that's going to be tough. What is the other disadvantage, is that it is likely that it's going to be an AFPA, it's going to be within the framework of free trade agreement. Fine, what, are this, but what is the problem with that? Well the problem is, Again, it's going to be a part of a package, investment. At the end of the day, when you negotiate, you you will leave investment and the critical issues of investment together with the trade issues, with uh, financial services, etc., etc. So it's going to be a part of a package. Again, it's going to be contaminated. But the greatest problem, and this is the experience with NAFTA, I worked in the NAFTA world for, for 10 years. And I can tell you that the problem with the chapter 11 the investment chapter of nothing is that we cannot touch it, why not? it's part of the free trade agreement even if we want to change something of the free trade of, of the chapter 11 we cannot do that because we will basically open the whole thing we, if we open a little thing another state will want to open it on trade issues, on market access etc, etc, etc it's like a soup, know, put everything together at the last minute a lot of compromise, and and once it's, once it's locked, it's it's uh, it's very packed, and um, and although uh, not many people are happy with what it's inside, you don't want to open it because then you know will come out. So I think uh, this is this is one of the problematics. You need flexibility, and the flexibility you get with investment treaties, bilateral investment treaties. It's easier to add a protocol. It's easy to amend it's easier to modify that. Why is, why is this particularly important investment? Because I'm not, in, in, in trade is different, but investment is critical, it's extremely <coughs> important because investment law is the most dynamic area of international law. We all know that, meaning dynamic, meaning rapid, meaning uh, uh, fast, so we need adjustments, and, and, and we have to leave that door open. So my, my, my recommendation is that whatever approach is taken, it should be a very practical approach. And, and, and I think the more you, the power you give and the more flexibility and freedom you give to the member states, uh, the best for European investors. Thank you. Thanks very
1: much. Um, okay, so that finishes the uh, presentation. Um, but at the beginning, uh, I, should have rec- I should have said this at the beginning, I should have recognised the other contributors to the report, because Ian and I are only two of them, uh, and the other contributors are Christine Cote, um, uh, Robert Baisto, and um, Barish F- uh, Karapina. I'm not sure if he's here or not, from the ODI. So just to um, recognise them. So what I suggest, I'd like to do, and I open it up to... Uh, questions or discussion um, I'll take about three maybe three or four uh, in a go um, if you could just say who you are and where you're from before you um, ask the question so who'd like to start yes My name is Lisa, I'm overcoming student, so I
8: have two questions one substantive uh, how would the standards of protection be negotiated or assured that they really are um, taken from best practice of member states without turning them into another negotiation of the multilateral women on investment because the experience of each and every member state especially eastern and western they are very different because the eastern ones are receiving capital and the procedural one is how the the dispute settlement or what the dispute settlement mechanism is going to, how it's going to look like if the um, FDAs or BITs will be negotiated and signed by the EU and the investor from outside of the EU wants to sue the member state, the EU If, if the investor has something against the regulation then should it go against the European Union um, institutions, so, or uh, how, how is it going to look like? And if you want to be attached, for example, to ICSID, then Poland, for example, is not member of the ICSID of the Washington Convention. So would Poland be forced to join the Washington Convention, or would it be now for the EU just to sign up for <coughs> <to> the
1: Washington <coughs> Convention? Okay. Thanks very much. Let's take another two. Yes.
9: Hi Mark Banger, I'm one of the for it's less likely that the European Union will be able to negotiate an agreement. And I'd be hard-pressed to find any, except maybe North Korea. Um, point China, the US and Canada have, have tried this for a long, long time without getting anywhere. And with China, you could basically negotiate meaningless bits. Um, Russia hasn't even ratified the energy charter. So, you know, are they really going to negotiate Mercosur, if you tack it onto these trade negotiations, they've been going on for as long as I can remember. And Brazil has never ratified a bit because they always failed in the Senate. So what's the point there? Um, And well, I'm not going to roll in Canada or Singapore because those are actually easy cases because at least in Singapore well, as you know, right? Best business environment in the world. Um, So um, is that really just for, for saying to negotiate as sort of the, the twenty year expiry of protection
10: their now.
1: Okay, thanks very much. One more John
10: John Cook. Well just to make life a bit easier, I was going to offer an observation rather than ask a question. Um, this this change of competence it, it it reminds me very much of what uh, of what happened um, in the 1960s and early 1970s, when Member States commercial agreements with um, third countries were subject to a procedure of tacit reconduction, as it was called by by community legislation, that they would be, they would be allowed to be continued as long as they didn't. Um, Uh, as long as they didn't contradict community law I think and also until they were superseded at that time largely by multilateral um, uh, agreements which, which would then take over the various trade concessions. The interesting thing I think is that that model in principle looks so similar to what one might think of doing here in terms of union policy and yet I was very interested for precisely that reason in Luis Gonzalez's careful analysis of why there were these very striking differences, that what was what in the 1960s had been um, a rather obvious matter of a common policy taking over member states bilateral agreements and really working quite well could be subject to all sorts of difficulties in an area where, as he said, investment law is very dynamic. You need to know precisely the jurisdictions between whom you are concluding an agreement, and if, if the EU has meant 27 member jurisdictions, all of them with different domestic law in the very areas that affect investment, is is there actually a parallelism of, of moving from national competence to community competence in the 60s and now, mm. the development of the common commercial policy? I thought that was very interesting. <coughs>
1: Um right, uh, who'd like to have a go here? I don't want to duck out of answering the questions by chairing, but so let me let me be selective and answer the ones I can answer. <laughs> on the um on the standards question, how do you avoid the rerun of the Well this this is what some uh, I think member states and some Member States are concerned about, but uh, but it, it, it will be, as as Lewis was saying, it's, it is a more public debate. Uh, bilateral investment treaties have not been very public in, in the past; they've been negotiated between experts. But it's a fact. I mean, the the treaty change is there, um, and the it does constitute a change. Although, I mean, there are lawyers who argue that, um, in fact, it doesn't really change anything because in, under international. Establish international law. The, the bits still are still valid, but it is a it is a fact. The treaty change is there, and there will be more of a discussion because it's in the par- European Parliament. Um, how do you draw on existing member state bits without having this broad debate? Well, I think you you just have to ensure that it's a it's a balanced debate. It's based on substance, and, you, and it's based on a realistic assessment that. EU investment agreements have to be, they they can't be worse, uh, offer significantly worse standards than member state bits, otherwise they're not going to be credible. But what they can do is what a number of people mentioned, I think, is draw on experience elsewhere and experience with member state bits in order to um, work towards best practice. Does anyone want to have a go at the other questions? uh,
4: I can can confirm what what the has just said and and refer to explicit wording from the communication conclusions. Um, The union should follow the available best practices of member states to ensure <coughs> that no EU investor would be worse off than they would be under member states d It will be difficult, but I'd like to draw your attention that in the regulation and in the communication there is nothing about the automatic termination of BIT where there is an EU investor. <coughs> we want to assess this on a case by case basis. So we can well imagine a situation that even if we had if we negotiated European Investment Agreement, that the member states BRT will remain in force, meaning coexistence. But yeah, this is not excluded. We will see. We will assess it on a case by case basis when negotiating with trade partners. Uh, then uh, I would like to address the the, the question on on. Um, international responsibility um, of, 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 of um, uh, in the future investment European investment agreements. And again, you may find relevant information in the communication. Um, given the exclusive external competence, the Commission takes the view that the EU will also be so dependent regarding any member taken by member state. State which affects investment by third-country third nationals or companies falling within the scope of the agreement concluded by the EU. It, it means that the EU will remain uh, responsible for any measures taken either at the EU level or at the member at the member state level. Uh, then there was a question on the geographical uh, coverage, and again. we we cannot exclude negotiating with any third country. The the communication only presents the commission's view on uh, short-term priorities. Okay, and criteria are are general but then we present short and medium-term priorities. And we refer to Singapore, India, Canada and and Mercosur, just because we have ongoing negotiations with these countries. But of course, it doesn't exclude other potential negotiating (laughs) markets. And then, uh, who is interested in uh, in negotiating with uh, the EU investment uh, protection? In fact, um, with the exception of Mercosur, we we are not uh, there yet. Uh, You are perfectly right that Brazil uh, Does not conclude um, uh, BITs with third countries only regionally, Uh, but then even with uh, with Mercosur, we may imagine negotiating investment protection without Brazil by taking uh, through um, protocol or annex to the agreement. So, and it's not excluded. Of course, we may not push and. Partners to negotiate investment protection. But I can well agree that that, that, that it's
1: still feasible with your question.
6: Yes, Luis. Yeah, about the dispute resolution mechanisms. I would just briefly mention the exit. One one thing that is on the table and big discussion is that the European. Union is not a member of ICSIB, is not a member state of ICSIB, and cannot be a member of the uh, ICSIB Convention. This is a big issue because for European investors, it's extremely important to have an effective uh, mechanism for the resolution of investment disputes, and the most specialized mechanism is the ICSIB Convention. So it will not be available for European investors, to a third <coughs> investors from, from third countries bringing pla- claims against, against the European Union. Can, is is the ICSID Convention going to be uh, modified to to incorporate the European Union? Unlikely, extremely unlikely. I I I think that the the, the, the World Bank has already said no way, um, because it's extremely difficult. It would have to go and and be ratified <coughs> by all the member contracting uh, states of the ICSID Convention. So that is extremely unlikely. Funny thing is that. The European Union is thinking or negotiating with countries that are not members of, uh, that are not contracting parties to the Convention, like Canada and and, and uh, Russia, uh, etc., uh, or Mexico or Brazil. I mean, when and funny when they mention Mexico, because Mexico only exists. I'm, I'm, I'm Latin American. Mexico only exists in the mind of Brussels. It, it's, just not, it's not that, It's Brazil, basically. And, and, well, yeah, no, better. Uh, let me hear the, 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 the world of Mercosur, but uh, uh, let's be realistic. I mean, Mercosur is Brazil, and Brazil doesn't negotiate investment treaties with uh, investment, uh, investment, uh, investor state arbitration. So that's a reality, uh, and you have to live with that, even if you're the European Union. Yeah, just a very short
0: note. I mean, on the one hand, um, the proposal of the European Union to be. Uh, dependent in cases against it under the a future EU treaty. Is this nothing really astonishing. I mean, this is something we see in every federal state. Uh, Spain has these problems of the Catalans doing something which the central government has to pay off for. Um, US, Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. Germany, for that sake, it's not really something special. It's more a question about getting requests uh, from that state eventually. So that's a rather technical problem. The real ish, uh, A real obstacle is, of uh, course, the exit, exception. Um, because without the exit convention, um, I think the whole uh, huge bits network which has been spun around the globe uh, first of all wouldn't have happened and wouldn't make much sense in the first place. So that is a very critical issue to, to, to be solved and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what that brings. <coughs> this good resolution mechanism of arbitration is indeed the single uh, and only reason why Brazil objects against it. I, I, I wrote on this in on 2004, and unfortunately in Portuguese so that's maybe a problem, to understand the different steps that have been uh, going on in Brazil in the Senate, in in the, uh, leading to the rejection of all those uh, VATs concluded uh, with 14 countries. And by the way, there is a, VAT, um, a Mercosur uh, a treaty itself on investment, which, uh, <coughs> 1996, if I'm not mistaken, no, later on. But anyway, it is it is going nowhere simply because, um, and the just recent the re-election of the, the well, the election of the new president in Brazil uh, of the uh, of the working a workers party, uh, which has been the party which has been objecting to this, um, will just lead to continuing this position. Brazil will not sign up to any mechanism which will allow dragging it in front of an international tribunal. Um, and I think it's time for, for, for the European Community to to understand that that should, will not happen. I don't think it will lead anywhere.
1: Okay, thanks. Just on uh, John Cook's point about um, <coughs> something similar happening on trade, it's worth, maybe we should sort of look at that in a bit more detail. Because um, uh, there may be some lessons to be learned from that. So I've got three interventions. If you can say who you are, I've yes. already got three. Sorry, next one. And I'm
11: yet at the same time
7: Emily um, um, I was uh, a former student at the LSE and the uh, LM. Um Yeah, I have two uh, two remarks regarding the dispute resolution uh, system. First of all, uh, about the EU as a defendant, um, there is a, an obvious uh, practical where uh, call it where we want problem: is like who, if the EU gets condemned, who is going to pay? Who is going to have the budget to pay to the investors? Admit, like, I uh, suppose uh, Russian investors invest in Europe and choose, let's say, France, uh, and the EU is a Is France going to be paying for everything? So uh, this will obviously be a, a problem. Um, and then um, and then the other question is, um, in the communication, the EU is, of course, related to the exit um, the exit membership of the EU. Um, the, the communication is discussing a review system, uh, the coherency of case law, um, the transparency question, but those questions have already been debated, and notably the transparency question is quite problematic for many uh, third world countries who don't want the proceedings to be transparent. So there may be there a contradiction between the fact that uh, the the EU is party to the European Convention on Human Rights and uh, want to uh, promote those practices and that transparency and the fact that um, uh, some developing countries uh, are completely hostile to any publicity in those cases so how would you uh, respond to those contradictions?
11: Um, Nikos? Uh,
3: yes, I'm Nikos Avranos uh, I'm a uh, senior Trade policy advisor for the Dutch Ministry, so I'm very happy that you mentioned uh, the Netherlands, and uh, <laughs> not only that, but you, you spoke exactly out of my heart, uh, which is very nice, um, because then it doesn't have to be only member states' view. But I want to to mention a couple of things. The first thing is um, because I think it has not been mentioned uh, is um, have a look at the Council conclusions of 25 October which were adopted on the communication um, which I think make a very good reading and um, make clear what the wishes and what the concerns of the member states I think that's very important to see Um, second um, I think we need to make a clear distinction um, between the communication which is future looking and the regulation which is for the past. I think most member states, and you can see that in the Council conclusions, they have not much problems in general with the communication, with the future um, policy of the EU. Um, With regard to the exit and the dispute settlement, I think the solution will lie in mixity. You have mentioned it. Mixity will ensure that both member states and the EU will be commonly responsible. So I don't believe that there will be a sole um, responsibility or representation by the EU. It will be mixedity, and that will sort out all or many of the um, practical issues. Um, but with regard to the regulation, which is really the concern for the member states and the concern of businesses, um, let me make really clear that this authorization system, as it is proposed, can never create legal security because we know that 99.9% of all current existing bids of the Member States are inconsistent with the ECJ judgments. We know that. Which means, and I think the the Commission officials have said that privately or officially, I don't remember, doesn't matter the commission is not able to certify to accept an EU unlawful situation it cannot do that so we know that not after 5 years but within 5 years which can mean actually tomorrow the commission can withdraw the authorization we know it The funny thing is, of course, and that is true, it doesn't matter, the authorization, because in terms of public international law, the member states remain, uh, the the bit of the member states remain valid in any case. So there is a looming, 100%, 99% certainty that the authorization will be withdrawn, and when you look at the conditions especially the conditions of what is an obstacle. I mean, I am an obstacle already for the future policy of the EU, so that alone is a reason to terminate all Dutch bids. <laughs> so, I mean, let's be serious. Any lawyer any lawyer can see immediately that this is such a broad possible uh, uh, definition, broad as possible, that it cannot be accepted. So, um, I just want to reiterate that We, as a member state, we cannot accept this, we will not accept this authorization system, not because we want to have an infight with the Commission, not because we want to have an infight with the European Parliament, no, because we want to make sure that investors know what they are going to do when they invest. I think that's really important to emphasize. Thank you.
1: Okay, thanks very much. Who wants to respond on this? Yeah. can you start off anyway? <laughs> uh, just,
0: just take uh, the first one. Um, one, one uh, starting with Nico's last point. Um, there is an inherent problem of as you say of authorizing something where you're quite short sure certain that it is already in violation of the EU law. Now um, as a lawyer it's still difficult but at least as a German lawyer that might be a problem as well. Um, it's difficult to conceive that we just don't do anything either. So if we've seen the cases against Austria, uh, Sweden and, and Finland um, which have attacked let's say, the <coughs> most obvious and most um, yeah, uh, problematic uh, contradictions between EU and BIT uh, provisions, um, I do see the problem that, I mean, yes, Louise was right, opening Pandora's box again and over and over again will just lead to a huge mess, but that <laughs> doesn't that actually plead in favour of having and the UI solution and really taking up the whole problem as a whole, and then, well, it will take maybe, uh, as Simon said, a decade. But the problem has to be addressed, and just not saying, well, let's just leave everything the way it is, it's murky and, and, and shady, and we know there's a problem in there, um, doesn't seem to con- fit with the idea of the rule of law altogether, especially given the, 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 the massive attack against the entire. Uh, in the investment arbitration system as a whole from uh, NGOs and from uh, maybe also from now on in the European Parliament um, on a, on a by note uh, the, <coughs> uh, the, the rapporteur on the on this question in the European Parliament is uh, from the Green Party so there will be uh, quite certainly um, some reaction to all of this from, from uh, a different perspective um, so I think there is some need for solution and eventually I I do feel inclined to say, yes, the the proposal of the Commission seems uh, twisted and and sometimes tortured because it tries to find a solution which which cannot satisfy uh, everyone, um, and it has defects, but on the other hand, just leaving things the way they are doesn't seem right either, and if there is a treaty, which is the Lisbon Treaty, which gives the Union this power, um, something must be done about it. I think this is also what uh, Long said, um, you will have eventually public pressure, um, political pressure of doing something uh, otherwise, um, you know, Louis referred to it being important to have things in the shade to be able to move things but um, it is like your, your, your I would say a lapsus of saying um, something is infected with human rights issues. And there is something which, <laughs> <laughs> which the public will not like, accept that that is an infection, but it is rather that, as the English judges have put it, uh, maybe uh, sunlight is the best sanitizer of all, uh, meaning that it should be a public and transparent
1: discussion. Now, there were a couple of questions about dispute settlement, which um, uh, Nikos mentioned could be resolved through mixed, mixedity. Is, there, is that more or less answered your question on, uh, on dispute settlement?
4: he has left,
1: I think. But mm, no. Maybe I
4: add to this that, that as for the Commission view, um, we presented uh, broad orientations of, of, of the future policy, and mm. we uh, clearly uh, <laughs> uh, stress that that investor-state dispute settlement is of crucial importance and. In order to, to make uh, in European investment agreements really uh, enforceable, we need investor state in dispute settlement. But there are, of course, many questions that are not answered yet, and we are working on this. Uh, so, uh, in order to, to, to make it uh, workable, <coughs> we may need also new legislation. But as it has been already indicated in this room that the investment agreement is not a one-day task, process, then uh, I'm sure that that we will be ready uh, for the first investment, European investment agreement. Uh, This is both for the uh, problems related to uh, to the fact that the EU uh, cannot... uh, be uh, a party to the convention and the same <coughs> be, uh with relation to 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 responsibility um, and uh, the possible uh, financial uh, implications of 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 um, of uh, tribunals Okay,
1: uh, <coughs> gentlemen,
12: i <coughs> <coughs> comments or an observation, more than anything, and it uh, comes off of what uh, Langer was saying about uh, there being nothing like facing a judgment from the Nixon tribunal to focus the mind on uh, what your bits contain. Um, And this, what Simon was saying, being really, in a way, sort of a lucky stroke, I think, for EU member states, um, as offering a fresh start. Because if you look, I think, at most Western European bits, they tend to be of the old school, with rather general and vague uh, descriptions of the standards of protection, um, without the kind of clarification that you find in the practice of the North American bits, Canada and the United States, particularly, um, with annexes <coughs> describing what the states have in mind with respect to fair and equitable treatment, what they have in mind with respect to uh, general regulatory measures, etc., and if nothing else, I think it may provide an opportunity, however, the member states and the Commission work it out amongst themselves, uh, for European <coughs> bits to, if you like, modernize and uh, become a bit more reflective of the fact that although a number of speakers have spoken this evening about uh, protecting European investments, <coughs> uh, it's not only European investments who get protected by these bits, and that the flows of capital from developing states, or what one used to think of as developing states, uh, across borders has increased dramatically. And it is just as likely that a Germany will be on the other end of a bit claim. And then it would be helpful to say, well actually fair and equitable treatment only means what customary international law says. Okay. So that's my observation.
10: Thanks very much. Uh, in the back.
13: Uh, my is Alex Sandel from Alam and um, All the talk tonight has been focused on bilateral investment treaties, countries, so I find myself wondering if uh, the communication and the EU's future policy has any implications for multilateral instruments, like the Energy Charter Treaty, which obviously has all of the EU member states' party, also the EU itself as the successor of the but also has something like 30 or so non-EU parties. Um, and so with the EU's policy in mind, effectively gradually withdrawing member states from the investment treaty process, uh, I wonder whether the panel sees any uh, potential
5: effect on the
1: ECT. Here we go, one more. Yes, please.
11: Um, Adora, a question from Freshfields. Just a more kind of general question, picking up on something that Louie mentioned um, earlier. How would the panel see it if this was to, if you were, spread to kind of other interna- intergovernmental organisations? Would the EU as a whole or would many states individually feel comfortable, for example, signing up to a bilateral investment treaty with ECOWAS or, you know, kind of Southeast Asian um, IGO, what, what would you, how would you view that kind of progression?
1: Right, who'd like to start on the, um, fir- well, that was a comment, really. Uh, does anyone want to comment on the comments? <laughs> that this is an opportunity that the member states should grab? in order to modernise the investment agreements? Yeah, uh,
5: obviously you a, a bit on what i said But we, we've already seen um, the change in direction. Um, the last bits that we signed, and we did sign some in the run-up between 2006 2009, partly because we didn't know what was coming next, so was, we need to get these done. And we still had two countries coming to us, that was Zambia and Ethiopia, that just came to us and wanted something because they wanted to get the investment in but equally we had um, Qatar and Kuwait come to us because they wanted to invest into the UK so it has already started to flip around and I think, I don't know how far you can push this with someone like China because there's so many other rules for Chinese investors that want to take money out of the country and abroad but hopefully the Chinese will see that there is a benefit in having a mutual two-way investment treaty and that the fact that they've got all the money to they've got all the money,
1: they've got all the American money um, to invest, it might drive them to do it. OK, thanks. On, the, on this region-to-region uh, agreement, um, let me have a stab at it, maybe Marta can uh, add on. I mean, the, the EU's position has been, of course, to promote region-to-region negotiations. So it hasn't been... Uh, they haven't really advanced very far, uh, but theoretically and in, in, in principle, there's no uh, the position, EU position would be presumably that that this would be a favourable thing to do. But the the main barriers have been usually, and the other, the EU's negotiating partners haven't really uh, got close enough to a common position in order to facilitate that.
4: Yeah, I can only uh, say that, that we um, uh, engage in uh, regional um, uh, trade agreements, negotiating with regional um, trade agreements. Um, those regions are not mentioned, I mean, with the exception of Mercosur, regions are not mentioned uh, in the communication, but, but uh, I mean, as I said, I mean, that you that may find uh, useful and, and <coughs> desirable to, to engage in such <coughs> negotiations. But as I said, I mean, we may not negotiate with, with uh, the whole world at the same time, so we shall really make priorities and it's really up to to, to all EU institutions to decide on priorities. Um, you yeah, are perfectly right that the, the Council <coughs> uh, adopted conclusions uh, indicated, indicating its priorities, we will hear from the European Parliament his uh, views on, on on priorities. So uh, we will try to to to, to, to get further uh, with defining uh, future directions of of, 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 of development of, of investment policy. So on, on multilateral. Uh, I'm not an ECT expert, so so I I will not refer to ECT, but in the communication, the Commission clearly says that that if there is an uh, initiative on the multilateral level um, uh, on investment, uh, the Commission view is that the EU should be involved in in such process. But still, there are some conditions that, that, that are necessary to make this uh, really successful. And, uh, so, so um, we are not very uh, specific on this.
0: Uh, yeah. Maybe just very shortly on on the ECT impact. Um, we have, of course, a certain, um, and this is the kind of backlash uh, discussion, we have the strange situation that uh, those uh, arbitrations going on right now, we just concluded one year, AES against Hungary, but others uh, looming in the background, um, and against uh, Romania, are, uh, well, not Romania, but the ones against Hungary are all based on the ECT, uh, on the Energy Charter Treaty. The Energy Charter Treaty has been created by the, primarily, well, the Dutch have been proposing it and eventually has been created by the European Union itself. Um, um, and now we have a situation that, w- we, we, we might find that if Hungary is uh, condemned to pay damages, to pay back the subsidies they have taken back because trying to comply in advance with EU state uh, provisions, we, we found ourselves in a complete dilemma because it would be, from a EU law perspective, completely unacceptable. For those investors to get those benefits back, because that would precisely defeat the purpose of the uh, of the state aid provisions. <laughs> um, so eventually, in a certain way, and I I'm kind of suspect that many uh, of these treaties uh, function that way. There is a kind of creation, and, 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 and even the EU is not or was not really aware of what that would eventually mean. And that Kilzenbuthyam in said, um, investment flow are turning around, mm. and um, yes. we, we do have Brazilians buying up uh, uh, German companies, we have Indians buying up uh, uh, much more, <laughs> yeah, and let alone down Chinese uh sorry Chinese, so <coughs> we will see much of this coming up in the next years, and, and eventually if we start being, um, if we start rethinking our positions of how to negotiate treaties, like it has been done in the communication, of course then throws a light on the existing ones, like the ECT, um, and um, we'll make put a question mark uh, above
1: them. Okay. Um, any more points, questions? We've got until we've got the room until half past eight. So if anyone wants to ask any more questions,
3: maybe questions? I just uh, can uh, add. Uh, in terms of because we are focusing on the exit, we should also recall that. Uh, A number of states have withdrawn from exit uh, in the past, Uh, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, I read that Ecuador is in the process uh, of going in the same direction. Um, So (coughs) you can see that maybe exit is not entirely satisfactory anymore for a number of countries. So uh, the other alternative is UNSIDRAL. Uh, We haven't talked about UNCTRAL but but then again, UNSITRAL has some issues with transparency. Uh, So, and the question of the EU not yet being able um, to join the UN or whatever. Um, So, um, this is what I wanted to um, mention, that um, ICSIT itself has apparently a number of systemic issues um, that are currently discussed or that need to be addressed in order to remain attractive. Uh, and there is talk um, of what about more consistency? What about a roster of arbitrators? What about maybe something of an extended uh, appeal system? We have the annulment decision, and Argentina has been successful uh, recently with the annulment uh, procedure. Um, so, um, just copying the exit or telling the EU, if ever, uh, although I have other information that I was told that uh, World Bank would have no problem bringing in the EU, they said uh, to me. So, anyway, but just bringing in the EU into exit may not solve the other um, what were there? Challenges, not problems. I always use the wrong word. <laughs> challenges. <laughs> the other challenges that were rightly identified and were also rightly identified yesterday in the EP meeting uh, by Nathalie. Um, so, we, we must be careful with ICSID, um not just praising it into the heaven. Huh? Uh, I,
1: have
2: a, well, I have a question now that we have a few more minutes. Um, and that concerns, that relates to substance. Um, and it ties a bit into what Jan what, uh, said earlier um, and what your your presentation says. that you basically have two choices in terms of specifying key provisions expropriation, fair treatment, umbrella clauses, and so forth. And on the one hand, the communication says no European investor, no. Investors from European countries should not be left in a worse position than they are on the BITs. <coughs> but on the other hand, says, well, maybe MFN provisions shouldn't cover dispute settlement clauses, fair and equal treatment, we have to think about this. That might only uh, mean international minimum standards and so forth. And that's, again, to use a nice word, it's a bit of a, cha- uh, <laughs> a, bit of a tension, right? <laughs> so... Um, and i'm wondering uh from the member states i mean what we've heard today is uh that in terms of substance in terms of specifying provisions well we're fine with that things have changed the capital is flowing from kuwait and china and whatever so that's perfectly fine but is that really so is it really the case that particularly the major capital exporting countries of the european union are perfectly fine with uh, more clearly specifying population provisions, federal treatment, and all these things, does that not in any way uh, lower protections?
5: Yes. <laughs> 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 um, I think we're, we're happy with broad, a broad terminology for what investment is. I think on tightening the terminology for. The level of protection, we want to do that. I mean, because it it's it's going to go both ways, and you have the danger of whether or not you're going to look hypocritical when you're saying um, you're a small developing country. Um, we're going to take everything from you, That's it? And then you get someone like China around the table, and you're know, saying, well, we really want your money to come into us as well, and so we'll do a little giving. But I think you need to find the balance, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to vary between countries. I think a trend that we, we
6: see is uh, I'd like to say that it's it's a trend to NAFTA approach, and Brussels didn't like this at least not, not a few years ago. They didn't like that European countries were taking a NAFTA uh, model in their new BITs, and but we see now in our take for example China. I mean, the three NAFTA countries start negotiating at the same time with China. Mexico is the only one who concluded. And it's a NAFTA approach. If you read the, the Chinese PIT, it's NAFTA style. And, uh, and you see Spain and, and, and that has agreed to the NAFTA approach as well. And you see Japan that Japan only negotiates a NAFTA uh, style treaty and you go Singapore, and you go to many countries, not to mention African-American countries, That is, it's go, is going after. So the question for Brussels and for the member states is, you know, that's, that's the trend. The other countries, the third, you know, third countries are taking after, of course, what is Brussels going to do? If it really wants to, you know, be realistic and finalize and conclude
1: uh, a treaty, with, like, an investment treaty with this country. Does, does anyone from the um, other participants want to add on this, say anything on this. Yes?
13: My name is Sunny Chodha, and I'm from New Uh To add to what this said, I just think that, I mean, this goes back to the idea of the fact that you can't have a model
1: Anyone else want to come
11: in? Um, Could I just contribute from the perspective of um, organisation to organisation, tying in with um, what he's just said. If the EU, for example, was negotiating with another similar organisation, surely would it not just make the substance of the bit more and more diluted because of the variation of the countries within each of the organisations?
1: Okay, I think love uh, and then Jan would wants to come in.
11: This is, I
2: guess this is time for questions, because <laughs> 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 yes, I have another question. But it just follows up on this very discussion. And, and um, <coughs> so we have the UK, we have the Netherlands sitting here. And in terms of the Netherlands, um, saying on the one hand that as long as we figure out the procedural issues and we include investor state arbitration, then we're more or less fine with European investment treaties. There's been a lot of talk today and in the uh, presentations and the commission about how do you understand investment. And that's, a por- of course, very, very important. But another uh, very, very important question is how do you understand an investment? And here you have, re- that's one of the places where you have really big differences between the member state models. Um, in fact, <laughs> it might be the biggest difference. And in particular, the Netherlands, some of the early models in the UK have a very, very liberal definition of investor. So, Ronald Lauder could establish himself in the Netherlands and then he could sue the Czech Republic. Is that feasible, you think, in a European investment framework, that the European Parliament is going to approve that we can have American investors establish a post-buck in the Netherlands and then uh, he's considered a European investor? Um, I don't know. So that's that's my question, I guess, to the Member States, and if not, would that be would you be willing to give up your broad notion of investors uh, for the purpose of investment treaties?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: just a little follow-up on, on substance. Um, uh, I think w- one should remember that we're right now on the high tide of investor protection. Um, we have uh, bits of so of so many with so many countries, um, and at the same time, with such vague provisions that I think. Uh, it's difficult to argue that we can even increase of protection furthermore. Other than adding some more, and we um match with the MFN clauses and most favorite nation clauses, we're um, always building up everything at the same time. I think um, if, 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 we, if we look into the future, uh, we, we just have to accept that the uh, time has come, that, that we now have to kind of look back. The tide is coming back to us. Uh, investments are swapping into Europe, and therefore our exposure to liability <coughs> is uh, increasing massively. And. Uh, I think that is something which is not really happening yet at the member level, and are not seeing at the member state level or at the commission level. Is to say, just let's be realistic. In the long run, we will decrease investor protection because we just need that for our own sake. And we're talking about policy space, um, and we're talking about lots of things which, so far, our investors in uh, arbitrations with um, developing countries have been most uh, eager to ignore. So um, I think there is some. And actually lots of discussion necessary to understand that we are having a situation now which has been created in the last 40 years which is maybe just simply not sustainable because we will have to pay the price afterwards
1: Yeah, I think we just, uh, does anyone on the panel want to have a last word? Um, you don't have to, but if you want to take this
5: I was just going to quickly say about um, forum shopping or where you, because with the UK, because obviously we have a lot of crown dependencies and overseas territories Um, it's quite often the case that people will use one of our investment protection agreements that's that's routed through Bermuda and they'll have a post box in Bermuda and as irritating as that is for my workload (laughs) (laughs) um, it's ultimately we've created these bits to create an investment environment that benefits UK and that country but if it benefits everyone is it that is it such a bad thing
1: okay uh, I think we let's wind up there um, thanks very much for um, coming along thanks very much for all the contributors and um, just before you leave uh, can I uh, this has been a, a joint um, project between the, uh, the what's your project called (laughs) the transnational law um, project and the international trade policy unit Um, and it's been I think fairly fruitful in that we've been able to address this from both a trade and a (coughs) legal perspective which I hope we can continue and maybe I'll remember the name of your project can I just one bit of PR from the Um, trade side, we've got the next event is going to be a workshop on Wednesday the 1st of December looking at EU trade policy following the publication of the new policy orientation um, yesterday by the Commission. Um, so we'll send out a note on that. Jan's probably got something else he wants to uh, add. Just another very technical note for those
0: who <coughs> haven't understood it. If you want CPD credits, sign yourself up um, otherwise. Uh, have an excellent evening. and Thank you for coming.